This is the final uh, installment in our series on happiness that we began the beginning of the summer. This is the final installment of me uh, running this church. And as I've said to a number of people, me running this church really means um, Jeannie and Colleen running this church and me sort of watching as they do it. Our first uh, entrance into this series was on the three types of happiness. You'll recall that there are three different ways in which uh, uh, psychologists have identified human happiness. The first is hedonic. That's the happiness of pleasure, the happiness of a nice piece of art, a nice steak, um, a great day, uh, hanging out with your friends. Another type of um, happiness is eudaimonic happiness. Uh, from the Greek word for flourishing. It's the life of success, of, of a life that's embedded in a community where you practice the virtues and you find out that your life goes exactly the way that you'd want it to go. You're respected in the community. You have very much. Uh, you have enough to give. You're generous. Uh, you practice faith, hope, and love as a Christian. And then the third type of, of happiness, which we've been more or less spending some time on, is eschatological happiness. Uh, from the Greek word eschaton, which means the end, or it refers to the end of time, the end of history. Uh, it's a type of happiness that's possible no matter what your circumstances are, because this type of happiness holds in mind the final end of our destiny, the final end of the world when the Lord returns, his kingdom is brought in its fullness. And John, John Burrell, can I, can I have one of those? I forgot to take one, and it has my scripture passages on it. Thank you. That's eschatological happiness. Then in our uh, second message, we talked about God's happiness. And we saw that uh, God's happiness is something like God's ability to look down on the works of his hands and be, and we, we tread carefully with our language here, but almost be in awe of what he has done as he observes uh, the way that uh, the nature of the creation interacts, it's both genera- uh, generative and creative, and it's also orderly. Also, the way that he's able to look at the perfection, the beauty of his plan, even in the midst of the incarnation of the Son, even in the midst of the Son's suffering and death, God the Father, and somehow in the Trinity, God is, is in awe and, and pleased and happy, even in this, this very strange um, experience. And again, we have to be careful with our... our, our talk about God, because even to use a present tense verb, experience, even to talk about happiness, when you're talking about the Lord of the universe, our our words aren't quite good enough to capture what God is like. God is bigger and more amazing than our small human minds can possibly wrap themselves around. And so when we use this language, we use it provisionally, and we use it uh, understanding that we're, we're not quite getting there. Now, what we didn't say when we talked about God's happiness, God having this awe, this, uh, this, this, this pleasure, this joy in what he has uh, done with the earth, what we did not talk about is how inaccessible God's joy is to us. Um, and there's a couple reasons for this. I think the most important of which is that if you're God and you're looking down on the creation, the world, time, you have a much, you have a much different perspective than the creation does. This was first brought out in the Christian tradition by a, a theologian philosopher named Boethius, and I want to say the third or fourth century uh, in the uh, AD. Boethius was thinking about time, and he said, you know, time is sort of like a path through the forest. 
And we, as human beings, we're, we're sitting there in the middle of the forest, and, and the path, we can see just a little bit ahead, but then it turns. And, and what's beyond that turn is, is a mystery to us. It's, it's beyond what we can see, right? But for God, God's sort of like the bird flying above the forest. And when God looks down, God sees the, the path in its entirety, God sees every turn. He sees where it ends up, where it began. And even though we're in the middle and we can't see very far ahead or very far behind, God has a different perspective. This uh, actually has led to a number of philosophical debates about the nature of time, nature of God. As a philosophy major, I'd like to submit to you that anyone who's figured that out is lying to you. Uh, I'm much happier to say, God, you are God, and in, in your infinite wisdom, you have done things that we cannot imagine. And if that's how you see the world very good. I'm simply going to trust that you know what you're doing and you have it all in your hands. But if that's the case, if that's sort of the way God looks at the world, and this is the source of God's joy, God's happiness, then you can see that it is not accessible to us. Because it's not something that we can't see like God, we can't think like God, we can't be God. In fact, it's when we try to do these things that we are in sin. And I suggested to you last time that nevertheless, despite the fact that we cannot participate in the same kind of happiness, of joy of God, that nevertheless, the the highest human happiness is somehow analogous, it's somehow drawn from the kind of uh, happiness, the kind of joy that God has. We're going to try and, and deal with that today. And it's sort of ironic, sort of strange. You know, we, hear, we, we see this video, we, we hear these testimonies of, of people who um, have literally nothing in many cases. And yet, I, I know that Carrie will, will testify that when you go down to Haiti, uh, there's a joy that the Christians there have um, that I, 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 it's, it's sometimes mind-boggling that we who can be in the first world and have so many things and so, so much and abundance and overflowing, and yet we, uh, we're, we're making books about how to be happy on the bestseller list. They couldn't afford one of these books, and yet they seem to have the thing that we want. I don't know what to say about that, only that um, everything you hear in a sermon about how to be happy, you should probably take it with a grain of salt. And if you really want to experience eschatological happiness, the sort of thing that we're talking about today, I would recommend to you that you, you take the plunge. Go to Haiti with the Gibsons um, and, and see a different kind of spirituality. So let's let that hang in the, in the rafters as we do this. Mom, do you have that, the, the picture? I just want, yeah, that's cool. It's like a stained glass window. It's pretty neat. Let that hang out there. Uh, if you have your note sheets, please, uh, let's, let's read today's passage. It's 1 Peter 1, 22 to 2, 3. Uh, if, you're, if you have your pew Bibles, I'd recommend that you uh, follow what we have in the note sheet. I've adapted this from a translation uh, by a scholar, a recent translation from a scholar. I've even messed with his translation a bit uh, because I want to avoid uh, some of the maybe associations that we might have with uh, words that aren't that aren't really what Peter's getting at. So I've, because we're not looking at the whole first and second chapter of Peter, I've glossed a number of things in this translation in order to get it so that it, it hits where we're at in this sermon, okay? So um, I've even put some brackets there to help get you a sense of what's going on uh, behind the text, and some of these things I'll, I will highlight. 
let it be said that, that I think that what Peter's doing is he has behind this passage the logic of eschatological Christian happiness. The person who, who thinks and lives in the world that Peter is describing is the person who is truly and completely happy. And that may be surprising because you'll notice that he doesn't even talk about happiness. Uh, let's stand and read this together. Having set yourselves apart, holified yourselves, through obedience to the truth, for the purpose of unpretentious familial love, you must love one another deeply and unceasingly, having been given new birth, not from perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Since all flesh is like grass, and all human glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord endures forever. This, this forever word of the Lord was proclaimed to you as good news, as gospel. Therefore, having set aside every evil, every deceit, and pretenses, and jealousies, and all slander, like newborn babies, you are to yearn for the pure milk of this word, this word enduring forever word of the Lord, so that you may grow up into a complete, mature, total salvation. And this do because you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, is good. Please be seated. Uh, you'll notice uh, just a few textual uh, issues. Holified yourselves. Uh, the Greek verb there is the one that, the noun form of the verb is what we usually get for holy, right? And, and a lot of the time when we hear holy, we, we sort of think like a sacred space, like some place that's you know, special and neat and we, and we shouldn't go there. I think really what Peter's getting at is he's like, you people are different than the rest of the world. This community, this church, Coast Bible Church, is not the same as the people at, out there. We have a different character, a different look. And so we've been holified, we've been set apart, put in this place. And how have we done it? Through obedience to the truth. And truth there, I think, is, is Peter's kind of gloss for, for what we've heard about Jesus. We've heard that Jesus has come, he is Messiah, he has saved us, and in obedience to that truth, that real life, that uh, true history, we've been pulled apart and made into a community, a church, a family. And the purpose of this is for unpretentious, unpretentious familial love. I put the Greek there, Philadelphian anipokritan. Uh, Philadelphian, where we get Philadelphia, brotherly love. Uh, Peter's point is this is the love between family. This is familial love. And we talked a little bit about that earlier this summer. We talked about life in the family. Where, uh, we, it was a passage from Paul where he talks about how difficult it is for uh, barbarians and Scythians and Gentiles and Jews and circumcised and uncircumcised, male, female, slave, free, all these people to get together and love one another as a family. But this is why we've been called. Uh, this word unpretentious, um, I, it, it's hard to get uh, at what the, the, the Greek's doing there. You might get genuine or sincere in some other translations. I use unpretentious in the dictionary definition of that word. That is unpretentious, not with no pretense. It's not as though you're pretending to do one thing and doing something else. There's a big problem uh, that a lot of us have experienced where, I, for example, um, because I want people to think that I'm a good person, right? I pretend to, you know, love them, right? I mean, I don't really love them, but you know, I just, 
Oh, hey, how you doing? Yeah, you're great. I love you. You know, I say all these things. I act all the right ways. But, you know, at the deepest part of myself, I'm not actually loving them. I'm just sort of putting on a show so that everyone around me thinks that I'm a good guy. So I, I gain status from this. You know, or conversely, um, I might even uh, act in such a way that my words are shown to be a lie, right? I say, I love you, I love you, I love you. But the way I act is the exact opposite of love. I undermine you. I cut against you. I, I backbite. I, I, I bring you down. I'm, in fact, if you look later on in the passage, I, uh, I have deceit, uh, pretenses or hypocrisies, jealousies, slander, right? I, I have the words of genuine love, but my actions of love are somewhere far, far away. And then Peter says, how is all of this possible? Well, it's possible because you have been born not from perishable seed, but imperishable. Uh, Greek there is sperma. Sperma is um, where we get our word sperm. And in Greek as, well, not in English, but in Greek, sperm, uh, sperma can mean both um, the genetic material produced by a man. It can also mean the seed that grows a tree, right? It can be both things. And Peter's getting a little, a little bit of mileage out of that. Um, because on the one hand, he says, you've been born again, right? You've been born anew. So in, in a way, like the Holy Spirit is something like uh, the gen- genetic material that, that comes in and gives us new DNA, regenerates us. You've been reborn. On the other hand, it's a little bit like a, uh, the, the seed that, cr- that creates flowers and grass. Now, that right there is a quote. Well, it's a loose quote. All, all uh, flesh is like grass. All human glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is from Isaiah 40, 1 through 8, which I have uh, reproduced below. Um, a little bit of background on this uh, text. There's... At the time, Isaiah is looking at a, uh, the return from exile. Israel has been exiled. They're pushed out of the way. Uh, they're languishing in exile. And uh, God's going to bring them back. And so there's good news for this people. Right? At the same time, we look at this text and we know that uh, it, in, in a way, is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Um, you'll remember uh, the one crying in the wilderness. We think of the, uh, John the Baptist. And that comes out in this text. Moreover, the, the promise of Isaiah 40 has not been fully realized yet. And so we look at a, a future fulfillment in heaven, in the eschaton, at the end of days. Let's, uh, let's look briefly at Isaiah 41 to 8 and see if we can figure out what the word of the Lord is or is like. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem, cry out to her. Her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Israel was sent to exile because of her sins. Now she's going to be brought back. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places made straight, rough places smooth. The glory of Yahweh revealed. All flesh see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Why? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
The voice, this is Isaiah, and then later John the Baptist. The voice said, cry out, and he, oh, I'm sorry, the voice is God, and he is John the Baptist, or um, Isaiah. What shall I cry? And the Lord responds, all flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Just like ours. Um, my daughter can't really talk yet. I mean, she gets, she gets some stuff. She can say dogu. That means dog. She can say Jake. That means Jake and the Neverland Pirates, which is a dynamite show on Disney Junior. Like, wow. I remember, though, uh, as a young child, uh, I would promise my parents a number of things. You know, my parents would say, what? Don't do this, don't do that. Mom, what were the kind of things that you would say? I don't know, don't eat pizza for breakfast. Okay, Mom. I promise. On Saturday morning, while you guys are sleeping in bed, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go downstairs, and I'm going to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I am not going to have pizza for breakfast. That promise, that promise lasted about 15 minutes. And then it was broken, and then I had pizza for breakfast. When I was 16, my promises got a little bit better. Not much. Uh, when I was 16, uh, Tom, you need to be back by, what, midnight? Oh, okay, Mom, I promise. <laughs> and I really intended to be back by midnight. I did. But, you know, when, when, when you're there, and you can only get, what, the 10.30 showing of Austin Powers... And it's really important to see it on opening night in 1999. Well, what are you going to do? You've got to sit there. I intended to keep the promise. It just, eh, what are you going to do? I had to watch it. It was really important. Um, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission, right? Uh, I think, I'm, I, think I'm, I hope my promises are getting better, right? As I'm getting older, maybe I'm... I, I, sometimes I worry about it, though. Oh, yeah, I promise. We'll have, uh, we'll have lunch next week. Oh, I'm so busy, you know. There are some promises that are really important I really intend to keep, uh, you know, till death do us part. I'm really going to go for that one. But you can see, though, that uh, as a person, I have my ups and downs. I have my good days and my bad days. This is probably different for you. I know that I'm in the midst of of holy saints in this congregation, but for the rest of us, the rest of us, I have my ups and downs, and it's difficult for me sometimes to keep my promises, right? When I say something, there is a disparity in between what I say and the possibility that it will get done. And I'm hoping that from the time I was six, and then 16, then 36, I'm not there yet, uh, <laughs> to 56, and God willing, if I reach 76, I hope, I hope that uh, the, the disparity between what I say and what I do, my, my, my words and my actions, will, will be closing. That'll be a closing gap. To the point that when I make a promise, you can be sure that it's been kept. Well, there's a difference, of course, between us, us and God, and the difference is radical. It is not only that when God says something, it will happen, although that is the case. It's the case that when God says, I declare this, it's going to happen. The difference between us and God, and this is critical, it's that when God says something, he is doing it. There is no difference between God's speech and God's actions. 
They are one and the same. We see this in the creation account. God speaks the world into, into creation. Let there be light. There is light. When God says, let there be light, light happens. We have a little bit of an, uh, an analog to this in our lives. The, uh, the clergyman, I've done this three times now, says, this is what I do. I, you notice at the end of my benedictions, I kind of raise my hands like this, like, go in peace. So I got the, the grooms here, brides here, and I say like this, you know, by the power vested in me, by the almighty state of California, and the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pronounce you husband and wife. Now you have to think about that. There's nothing that's, what, there's no physical change in the world, yes? It's not as though some new molecules have done new things. It's just me saying it. But because this church has invested in me a certain kind of power, and because this church has requested that the state of California also give me I, I think I might even take that out of my, my thing. state of California. What are you guys doing? Nevertheless, uh, the church has given me this power, and so when I say it, it happens. When you say it, something in the world changes between these two people. This is the same thing that happens every time God talks. His speech is his action. And this is a little bit strange for us. God says in Isaiah 40, uh, verse 4, Every valley will be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low, crooked places made straight, rough places smooth. Now you and I know, from our experience looking around, that that hasn't happened yet. And we can be sure that it will, because God has said it. But we notice in our lives that these things haven't all panned out yet. If you're in exile in Israel, when Isaiah makes this proclamation, you notice, that's wonderful and I believe it, but I'm still in chains. So we live in a strange experience compared to God's experience. When God says it, it's already done. God, remember, looking above on the path... God's already seen it. His word has made it happen. We, on the other hand, have to wait for it to show up. The word of the Lord that Peter refers to when he references Isaiah is this statement this declaration, this proclamation from God about the way the world is. And what is God's ultimate word, capital W? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. God in flesh. God who liberates the captives, who heals the sick. God who endures the suffering of the cross. God who rises on the third day and sends his spirit to us, inviting us all into a community that is the end. This word of the Lord is God's forever statement that who Jesus is and what Jesus did is the reality of all realities. And yeah, we're still waiting. But the eschaton, heaven, the end, it's it's real. It's here. It's now. We just sometimes can't see it because we're in the middle of the path and it's turning. But God said it. That means it's done. 
Uh, my newest daughter, Olivia, you saw a picture of her. She cannot stand me. Yeah. Up until, uh, yeah, it's tough, man. Up until, really, when Aaron got off work in, in June, Alice really liked me. Now she doesn't care about me either. It's like, I walk in, I walk in, I'm like, man, at least the dog still likes me. Piper, Piper is still on my side. If uh, last night at, you know, 1.30, I finally said, Aaron, do you think maybe you could take her downstairs so I could just get a few winks in? Got to write the rest of the sermon tomorrow. So Aaron left with the baby. The dog stayed with me. <laughs> One out of three ain't bad. <laughs> Olivia, why, does she, why can't she stand me? Well, Olivia, um, unlike her older sister, is really good at eating. She, uh, she just... Like, in fact, every, every moment that she's awake, she goes like this. This causes a problem because I can't provide what she's looking for. <laughs> it's, it's tough. It's tough to be a dad sometimes. As Colleen has been telling me, though, all week, this too shall pass. So we're, we're waiting for that. But that, that, that single-minded pursuit that Olivia has, that's uh, the pursuit that Peter tells us to have, right? He says, like newborn babes, newborn infants, yearn for the pure milk of the word. The word, uh, a lot of times when we hear word, we instinctively think the, the scriptures. I think here that's not what Peter's referring to, although the, the scriptures are our access point to the word. What Peter's talking about is the truth that God himself has been with us. He has lived the life of the kingdom. He has died. He has been born, uh, resurrected and has sent his spirit. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the word of God to his people. This is God's word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. Peter's referring to that. And sure, just as surely as the word that God, that God gave to Isaiah, when he spoke, it happened. So this word, this Jesus Christ, when he is here, when he speaks, it happens. When God speaks through him, it's done. End of story. Nothing else to worry about. This is the word that was proclaimed to you as good news. And like newborn babies, you are to yearn for the pure, pure milk of the word. Why? So that you may grow up into, and I've in brackets here, put total salvation. There's a little bit of a confusion about that word salvation. Uh, some, of the, uh, some, some people thought that that was added, or that that was uh, not part of the original um, Greek, and so they, they took it out. And there's a good reason for that. It's because you want to think that once you've been born again, you're saved. And this makes it sound like, uh, yeah, you've been born again, okay, but now you need to grow up into salvation. Now, if you only think of salvation as, I don't know, not being in hell and ending up in heaven, then yeah, that's a problem. Because everyone who's been born again is eternally guaranteed a place in God's kingdom. Don't need to worry about that. 
That's why I've added the, the, the word total, total salvation. Because there's a kind of salvation that's available to us uh, before we enter into glory. There's a kind of salvation that's available to you and to me right here, right now. And this is the kind of thing that we're to grow up into as we yearn for this message, as we meditate on this message of who Jesus is and what he has done. Then uh, Peter makes one, one last reference. He says, do all this, right? Because why? Because you have tasted that the Lord is good or gracious. Peter's referring to Psalm 34. He's making a little allusion there. Let me set the stage for you. You might remember from uh, the Old Testament, the story of David. David has a, before he becomes king, things are a bit rough for him. You'll recall. He's at this point in his life, he's out on the lamb. He's uh, running away from King Saul. And, And despite that, he's also beating up Israel's enemies. So even though the king of Israel wants him dead, he, he's still kind of like, he's a nationalist. He's like, I'm still going to fight God's enemies. He, not always, but for the most part, he's against uh, the enemies of God. And as it happens, because of this, all the enemies of Israel, the Philistines and the Hittites and whomever, they can't stand David. They want him dead. There's this story where uh, David, has, he's, he's exhausted, he's tired, and one of the local kings and his men see him. And David can't get away. David's spent. He's got nothing left. And so he, he looks at this guy, and, he, and David kind of phones it in. Normally when David's in trouble, he you know, brings out the long knives, goes to work, and cuts a whole bunch of people's heads off. Not today. Today, he's, he's exhausted. He just, and so his plan is he's going to pretend to be insane. And hopefully, if he pretends to be insane well enough, instead of killing him, this king will make him like a court jester. Kind of a weak plan. Really not David's best day. Nevertheless, he does, ah, da, 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 da. it works. King puts some, uh, King doesn't des- decides not to kill David. Then David ends up like stealing something from the king, and it's like yeah. But we're told in the Psalms that in Psalm 34 that this is what David wrote. This is the song that David wrote after this had happened, after he'd gotten away. Let's just uh, look at a few. Um, Verses from this. David says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see. The Lord is good or gracious. And the one who trusts in him is happy. See, David's like we are. God's told him through the prophet Samuel, you will be king. And when God says something, it's done. God already knows how it's all going to work out. But David doesn't. He's on the lamb. He's waiting. He's waiting. When is this all going to get sorted out? You know what? I give up. I'm phoning this one in, God. I can't can't do anymore. I'm going to pretend to be crazy. It's the best I got. And then God works things out because that's what God does. David looks back and he says, your word is forever and I will praise you every day of my life. That's the first um, verse of Psalm 34. In fact, every one of you, listen to me, okay? I had to phone it in and still God bailed me out. Let me tell you, come, come, trust in this God and see what he does for you. 
you'll see he's good. You'll see this God's not going to give up on you. He's going to show up. He's going to take care of you. Come look. This is good. And if you do, then you'll be happy. David learns, as many of us have learned, that when God says it, he does it. End of story. Did you guys see it yet? No? You, you, weren't, you weren't around the 90s, Mission Viejo Mall? You guys remember the 90s, Mission Viejo Mall. It was a rough place, man. Uh, Simon hadn't come, al- hadn't come along yet. They, really, they hadn't put the money in yet. Um, it was really falling apart. Uh, the A&W uh, stand was there, and it was just, I mean, you could see the cockroaches crawling up into the root beer. I mean, it was real bad. The best part about the Mission Viejo Mall in the early 90s and late 80s was uh, those kiosks, you remember them, where you'd go and you'd get those calendars called the Magic Eye. Nobody? Really? Okay, Colleen knows. The Magic Eye, right? Where you like stare through the picture and the magic happens and you see something cool. Leith, nothing? Yeah, Leith's too cool for that. I get it. That's fine. I, li- I like it. I like it. Leith, Leith, too cool. That's fine. That's fine. We'll watch football, man. That's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, this is the, the magic guy. Uh, let me just. There's this great song I love. You guys, you guys work on that. You, uh, Charlotte, you have to look through the picture. So you're like you're looking beyond the picture, and if you do it and your eyes relax, like a, an image will appear. It's cool. Uh, Connor Oberst, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, he says, "And we'll keep working on the problem. We know we'll never solve." Of love's uneven remainders, our lives are fractions of a whole. But if the world could remain within a frame, like a painting on a wall, then I think we'd see the beauty then, and stand staring in awe. We'll keep working on the problem we know we'll never solve. Of love's uneven remainders, our lives are fractions of a whole. But if the world could remain within a frame, like a painting on a wall, then I think we'd see the beauty then and stand staring in awe. Peter says, yearn for the pure milk of the word. This idea, this true story, that God himself has been with us, that God himself has been tortured by us and for us, that God himself has wiped away the sin of the world, that God himself has been raised from the dead, showing you your future, showing you a little piece of the whole world. If you just laser in on that and you start to meditate, really think about it. Just, just set your mind on this truth, this story, and think about what kind of God that is and start thinking about what kind of world this is. And then you create, Doug, worship songs out of this. You create your art out of this. You, you uh, create your interactions with people out of this. You create your interaction with the whole world out of this. Everything will fit. It's like you'll see the whole world within a frame, like a painting on a wall. And then you'll see the beauty then, and you'll stand staring in awe. Did you get it yet? (laughs) No, it's not. Not a schooner. Uh, it's It's Calvary. If you relax. You know what? I'll put it on the Facebook page. 
It's easier if you have a computer screen because there's like a little reflection of light so you can kind of just stare at the light and then it pops out. But yeah, in the center is, uh, is Jesus crucified and on the two sides are the thieves. The thieves of the cross. The pure milk of the word. The simple, pure, enriching, nourishing truth that God himself has been with us. That God himself died for us. That God himself was raised from this dead. This God who is life itself and yet tasted death on our behalf was raised then from the dead and invites us, beckons us into the new world. That word of God has happened. It's done. The future is set. There is no more question. And yes, we sit in the, in the meantime waiting to see how it all turns out, but it is nevertheless done. There is no question about the end. There is no question about where your life ends up. There is no question about how everything's going to turn out. There's no question about anything that matters in this world. It's all been done. And if you can't see it, focus like a laser right on the pure milk of the word and you will see it. You will see it all fit within a frame like a painting on a wall. And you'll stand staring in beauty then. The secret to happiness. It's just wiping all these things that we deal with day in, day out. These horrible and real things, and I'm not suggesting that they're not horrible and real, they are. These, these things that we do day in, day out, these fights that we fight, these battles that we wage, all of these things, it's, it's, it's looking at those things, they're all there. Those are all the spots, yes? But if you look past them, if you look past them and you see the big picture, Jesus Christ himself, God with us. You see the end. You know how it turns out. And the little things are just that. They're little. God has spoken. It is done. Come and taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're in the midst of, of lives that don't often make sense. We can't see around the next corner. We are people with limited, creaturely, human vision. And God, as these people, we yearn for the pure milk of your word. The word became flesh. The word who took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, the, the, the living embodiment of who you are, your nature, your character, and a picture, a tangible picture of the end of days. God, fill our minds with visions of this beauty. Put this before us wherever we are in whatever we do, always that we see the crucified one raised and in glory, always that we see him casting out demons, healing the sick, and bringing people into community. God, set this vision before our eyes so that we can look at it and see the world as it is. That we can see the beauty and stand staring in awe. That we can be people who are really just happy. God, make us your happy people. Wherever we are in life, whatever our circumstances, whatever we're looking forward to, whatever we regret, whatever we're afraid of, whatever we are anticipating, whatever we fear, whatever we cannot understand, make us people who are just happy, trusting in you, knowing that you're good, delivered as you would deliver us.
We love you, God. We love you because you first loved us. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.